welcome to The Confidence Fighter. I'm Myrtle and I'm so beyond happy to announce that we have been nominated for the British Podcast Awards 2022 in the family category. Thank you so much for supporting me on this journey and continue to spread the word. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Confidence Fighter and without further ado, let's get on with this episode. Hello and welcome back and this week I'm delighted to welcome Rebecca as my special guest on The Confidence Fighter. Rebecca, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your story? Yeah, I can. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm Rebecca Delsall and um, I wear a lot of hats. Um, I'm a criminologist, an activist, an academic um, and a coach Um, and I started off um, my career and working life really being passionate around racial justice in policing. Um, So I did a PhD that was looking at the idea of institutional racism in stop and search in the UK and the US. And stop and search is when the police stop someone in the street or in the US, they call it stop and frisk, um, because they suspect that person will have committed a crime, but then they will search that person. um, And if they've done nothing wrong, they'll let them go or they'll um, may arrest them if they find something. But it's been an ongoing problem for communities of colour for decades in the UK. So I became very passionate about that. um, And I studied it studied it and then I've worked for the last 15 years um, on racial justice programs around Europe and the US really trying to challenge racial profiling by the police both to empower communities to challenge the police but also sometimes working directly with police forces around research and trying to change police culture and policy. You mentioned institutional racism can you tell us a bit more about that and what that is? Yeah, I think sometimes when we think about racism, we think about um, individual acts of racism and hate crime, which which many people experience and still continue to experience. But I think for many people, um, the idea of institutional racism has been a really important one because it's talked to the structural elements of racism. So racism isn't just an individuals. It's actually embedded in the structure of our society. So in the police, in the schools, in hospitals, as we've seen during COVID, where we've had uh, disproportionate rates of people um, in treatment rates and disproportionate rates of people collecting COVID, which was all to do with the structures of our society and being embedded in racism and white supremacy. And um, so when I'm talking about racism, we're thinking about things like policies and recruitment and um, how people experience institutions in a way that means that there's differential treatment and then importantly, differential outcomes for people of colour. What have you learned over the years about racism? I think I've obviously have experienced it and I think it's one thing experiencing it and, and until you do it's very hard to put into words the pain and the humiliation and the damage that it can do to communities um, but also studying it um, I found it really interesting when you try to break it down how amorphous and how embedded it is into all the structures of our everyday lives that often makes it very hard to pin down. Um, I've done lots of work looking at the kind of what kind of elements within police forces or what structures within police forces perpetuate racism. And, and, you know, and you can and in many ways it is the policies and practices, but there's also individuals in there that put into place the policies and the practices and trying to unpick that is really difficult. But increasingly, um, I think one of the areas I've learned around racism is our need to heal from it and our need to think about trauma in relation to racism. So we haven't done enough thinking about the impact that racism has on people that are impacted or victims of racism, but also by people that um, 
inflict the racism or also just live in racist societies. And so with the police, um, I, for many years, I did lots of workshops trying to bring police and communities together, thinking that, you know, if we not, not, it wasn't naive enough to think if we talk it through, we'll, we'll fix it. But it was really to try and to get people to see the impact and understand other people's perspectives. Now I recognise because we're coming from a place where people are so traumatised and discussions about race are often so fraught that actually we need to do a lot more healing before we can even be in a room talking about it. We need to think about how we can help people um deal with and process racialized trauma but equally in the same time if we're talking about police or other other people of power within society to think about them to get a greater a greater sense of their impact but also some of the emotional things that come with 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 the jobs that they do or with the way that they've acted so you worked with the police can you tell us about like that experience um, I have worked with the police. First of all, when I was doing my PhD, I looked at the idea of institutional racism in stop and search in the UK and the US. So I spent um, about a year in total uh, across the two countries, riding around in the back of police cars, doing an observational study of how they interact with the public, particularly around street policing. Um, and then since then, um, I've worked very much on in um, one-off initiatives going into police forces, both in the UK and the US, but also different European countries trying to understand how their policies and practices work and working on them on, with them around things like culture change. Can you tell me a bit about your scariest moment, like working with the police? I think my scare, my scariest or my most uncomfortable moment was when I first um, went to, when I first went to the US, I was in Las Vegas and Denver when I was doing my policing research. Um, and obviously the police force in the US routinely carry guns. So they have, the officers have guns, but they also have a rifle in the police car so that if there's an emergency situation, um, it's on the thing. And the police officers that I were with wanted me to be able to prove that I could fire the rifle in case there was an emergency situation. I think now part of it was that I was like very young and a bit naive and they were you know trying to to take the pee out of the kind of English girl that turned up and with bright eyes to do this research but they made me prove that I could fire the rifle to be able to go out um, on patrol with them so I went out with them to the mountains with police officers and I learned to fire machine guns rifles um, pistols I went through the whole range so I do know what to do in the face of a gun but obviously I would never have actually fired it and um, there wasn't a situation that came up that I was in any way called to. Can you tell me the biggest risk you've ever taken? I think some of my biggest risks have been things like when I went off to um to America to start um, to do this PhD and I was quite young and you know it was me in a backpack to go and interview the police um, and I think pretty naively I hadn't realized um, how dangerous the situations that we've been but also how dangerous it was as a as a young woman working with predominantly male police many of them weren't very nice there were some instances of um, uh, inappropriate like sexual advances and also I saw a lot of violence and misconduct by the police when I was out there um, and which was difficult as a really young researcher without many resources behind to know how to deal with that when I was on my own. So I think that was the biggest risk. It's also kind of maybe one of the biggest learning experiences because I realised how resilient I am and, um, you know, got myself out of some very tricky situations and learned <laughs> in the future to be a bit more careful or a bit more planned in how I tackle kind of opportunities that come my way. Um, when you lack in confidence, like what are your tips to, you know, that help you? Um, I think I've got a couple. So in the moment when I'm lacking in confidence, um, I started over lockdown doing um, yoga and I absolutely 
absolutely love yoga um, and particularly like yin yoga, which is like a, sl- a slow form. But one of the things that I got from yoga is the warrior pose, which is really about making your body big and standing up tall. So if I'm about to go into a meeting where I'm feeling nervous or I'm going to have to say things that are going to make people uncomfortable or, you know, I'm not comfortable in that situation, in my head, I put on the warrior pose. So, you know, I will widen myself in my chair, I'll get my shoulders down and I think of myself as, you know, I'm a warrior, I can take this on and I and I broaden my body and I take a big deep breath. And I think there's something about really important, particularly for young women, which is around taking space in a room. Um, so I do that and I make sure I speak very early in the meeting. So I hear my voice. And even if I'm you know, nervous a bit, sometimes I've been in confrontational situations with the police and I can hear my voice quavering a little bit. But I will still really take a deep breath, take up my space and make sure I hear my voice in the room and, and do that early. I think the other thing that I do, um, which is kind of like a, there's different ways of thinking about it, but it's like an an anchor or an achievement wall. And actually, I have a box here, but I often tell people I coach to have a wall. So when good things happen, I save them. So sometimes, sometimes someone sends you a nice note saying, oh, that was a really great presentation, or it was nice to meet you, or thank you for doing this. And when I've done something and I feel like I've achieved something well, something good, um, I, I keep a note of it, or I keep a photo of it, or I keep something that reminds me. And so I have that on my office desk. And Sometimes when I need a bit of confidence, I look back through the anchor things and remind myself, okay, this was hard, but look, I did achieve that and I did achieve this. So I think that's a really nice one to find something that anchors you, that reminds you of all the incredible things that you've already done, that you'll take forward all that learning for the incredible things that you'll do in the future. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your 13-year-old self? Ooh, 13. <laughs> that's a long time ago now. Um, but... I think the advice I would give is to enjoy more and worry less. So when I was 13, I was very, very worried about things like schoolwork and doing well um, and a bit, of a, a bit of a perfectionist streak. So I always wanted things to go really well. And I think sometimes that stopped me enjoying things to the fullest because I've been so worried about, you know, getting that exam right or doing the best in that. So I think, although I think those things are important and it's really, it is important to study well, it's important to work hard, it's important to do your best studies. Nothing can't be redone. Nothing is worth getting so worried about that it stops you really enjoying, enjoying life and taking opportunities. And I think, you know, you work for a very, very long time. So actually really enjoying <laughs> being a teenager and really enjoying um, going to university and and prioritising kind of fun and joy and spending time with friends and family as much as things like studying and starting your career. Do you have a favourite inspirational quote? I do. My favourite quote is one by Angela Davis, the American freedom fighter, who said, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. And I think that's one of the, the quotes that I've always tried yeah. to live by. Oh, you like that one too? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good one, I think, because it always makes me think that actually there's lots of stuff in the world that is really screwed up um, and we shouldn't be accepting them. We have to try and change them. And one of the incredible things that I've experienced during the kind of things I've worked on is that there's so many people that also see other things being screwed up and we've just got to find a way to come together and be able to change it. Um, and I think we've done, I've worked with some incredible people around policing, like activists and communities that have really just fought for years to kind of change systems and to change the way that people are treated. And although it often feels depressing and that there's not a lot of change, actually there is, there has been change and there is change. And there's a kind of importance in battling those things together and in the connections that you can make, even if things are only changing incrementally, they're still making a change. 
And so let's not keep accepting things. Let's kind of battle together and figure out what we need to change and how we change them. What is your favourite book? Oh, this is such a hard one because I love to read. Um, and I really love, I often read a lot of American, African-American literature. Um, so I have, it has to be something by Toni Morrison. Um, I think The Bluest Eye was the first book I read by Toni Morrison, which was around... Um, it's set in the 1940s, I think, in America, coming out of the Depression. And it's about a young girl, I think she's eight, eight, nine, ten, who's developing a sense of identity. And it really looks at issues of racism and colorism and the idea that, you know, for many years, certainly when I was growing up as well, that, you know, the, the ideal of beauty is someone that's got blue eyes and long blonde hair and a very small, skinny body. And um, it's about this girl recognizing that in her brown skin that, that she is beautiful. Um, and that she doesn't have to have blue eyes to be beautiful. And although I think I can see some some changes, um, certainly now I'm a mum and I've got an eight-year-old daughter, I can see there's so many more representations of black women in the media um, and broader definitions of beauty. We still don't see enough of that. And particularly for very dark-skinned black women, um, you you never see them in, in fronts of magazines or in in. <laughs> in our in our pop culture in our um, movies in the way that we should so it's really about examining what our ideas of beauty and recognizing uh, beauty in its kind of fullest and widest definition so I was I think I read it when I was probably about 13 or 14 and it was a really powerful book for helping me come to grips with my identity and notions of kind of beauty and worth so my final question for you is what is your favorite song to dance to in the kitchen I don't ever want to admit this. I love singing and dancing to Whitney Houston in my kitchen when no one's about. And I don't want to admit this because I have the most awful singing voice, like pretty much like tone deaf. Um, so I like it on Alexa as loud as it can be. And I sing sing it out as loud as possible. But often, obviously, when no one else is about, because um, it would be painful to people to hear. But anything by Whitney Houston um, that's loud and um, dancey um, and, <laughs> and I can pretend that I can sing. And it does make me very happy. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Confidence Fighter and you're using Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate a rating and review because this means other young girls can find this podcast more easily. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.